following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I you now turn with me in your Bible to the book of Isaiah, chapter 52. News from the recent, most recent Black Friday reports that many people were attacked or trampled upon by greedy shoppers seeking closer places in line, eager to purchase coveted limited merchandise at early morning shopping events. People are very driven to get what their hearts desire. In no time of the year like Christmas awakens in us our hearts' deepest yearnings. This night of Advent, we come to a very familiar and yet troubling passage of Scripture regarding the Lord's suffering servant. Approaching this text reminds me a bit of the experience of watching Steven Spielberg's famous film, Saving Private Ryan. Those of you who have seen the film may recall the opening scenes, the intensity of the images, and the, the, the motions of the cameras as the cameramen follow soldiers in a reenactment of the storming of the beaches of Normandy, France in World War II. It's enough to make you nauseous. Likewise, this passage confronts us with very disturbing descriptions of the Lord's suffering servant. Nevertheless, I invite you to join me, follow, as we come to this graphic message who may gain insight into the passion of Christ. We pick up in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted, as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand." Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. This is the word of the Lord our God. Let us pray. Father God, once again, I would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I invite you to imagine with me a scenario where a head of state, accompanied by an entourage of various officials, makes a diplomatic mission to a neighboring nation, one with whom they've had a long-standing feud. This well-meaning head of state brings as a gift a, a delicate, rare, small tree, which in their own culture is a symbol of peace, and offers it to the other head of state as a token of friendship. Now, in this latter nation, trees and all things of wood are a symbol of animosity and war. In this host nation, rather than receive this gift with wisdom and humility, proceed to make a mockery of this scrawny little tree. They dress it with ridiculous and rude ornaments. They add injury to insult by breaking the tree in half and trampling Upon it. Well, as one might expect, it would spark great outrage and even war like conflict between these nations with very little room left for diplomacy. The scene that I have just read from Isaiah is intended to outrage us as we see the injustice committed against the Lord's servant. No doubt, in many times in various places, this text has been interpreted some, by some as focusing on Israel as a people mistreated by the nations, though she was intended to be a blessing. However, we would conclude that the focus on a singular person points to the true Israel, the one who would come, God in the flesh, the very Son of Man, who would suffer inexcusable horrors at the hands of his own people. Like spoiled children at Christmas, pouting over gifts that they did not receive, 
we as a fallen humanity are guilty of the most gross ingratitude, having trampled upon the most precious gift of God in the giving of his very own son. I believe God would call us tonight to identify with the man of sorrows, the one who has identified with us, bearing our griefs, and yes, carrying our sorrows. Let us identify with him and receive this precious gift that surprises, that satisfies, and even shocks us into deep adoration. This passage opens up in Isaiah 52, 13, with, a, with surprising highs and lows regarding this servant of the Lord. It begins with a declaration that this wise servant will be exalted. He will be high and lifted up. He will assume the role of a priest in verse 15, called upon to sprinkle many nations the way a priest would sprinkle the people with blood and water to make them ceremonially clean for worship. But intermingled with this vision of glory are deep lows of humiliation. This text is filled with ambiguity. Christmas is oftentimes an ambiguous season of the year. It is meant for rejoicing, celebrating, feasting, and spending precious time together. People give gifts to one another and spread holiday cheer. And yet for many, it is also a time of great mourning. There's no other time of the year quite like Christmas that brings pain to the forefront over lost ones with people still grieving. Not a few Lancaster County families will be experiencing sadness this holiday season, and none more than the Martin family who suffer the loss of three of their own children in the uh, car wreck that was announced this past week. Yes, in our text, we find one who identifies with the disturbing tragedies of this fallen world. These themes of highs and lows are woven into this text, even as we are introduced to this servant whose appearance will astonish many. In fact, he will be trampled on and his appearance be marred beyond recognition. I have shared with this congregation before the story of a Christmas morning in the home that I grew up in, the day in which my father destroyed Santa Claus. Now, a Christmas morning in Houston hardly requires a fire in the fireplace, but my father, being a nostalgic man, always insisted that we had a fresh wood fire, And uh, on this particular Christmas morning, he realized that he was out of lighter fluid and picked up an alternative fuel from the garage, not realizing that it was a highly flammable substance. My father doused the logs in the fireplace and lit the match. And as one might expect, rather than a nice cozy flame simmering up, there came out of the fireplace a blazing fireball. Now, 
above our fireplace on the stone chimney hung a Santa Claus figure that was made of a large straw broom. And to my father's great dismay, poor Mr. Claus was up in flames and threatening the ceiling above. Thankfully, my father, quick as lightning, grabbed St. Nick and flew like Rudolph out to the back patio and there proceeded to stomp and trample on poor Mr. Claus, who was left marred and beyond recognition. Thankfully, his quick action saved our house from burning. Like this simple Christmas decoration, the servant of the Lord was trampled upon and destroyed in order to save others. This man of humble origins grew up like a young plant. And it says he had no majesty about him and also no beauty that we should desire him. At Christmas time, we surround ourselves with beautiful and sensuous things. Yet oftentimes, they don't satisfy or fulfill our expectations. They are kind of like presidential candidates. Notice how many of the candidates are dismissed because of their appearance. It seems these days that there can be no serious contender unless the man is physically attractive. In contrast, we have the man of sorrows who was not attractive. And even the ones we do pick to lead over us ultimately do not satisfy us. Our leaders fail to live up to their hype. But though we have a Savior who appeared to be unattractive on earth, we will find that he is the most beautiful thing to witness and gaze upon in heaven. Friends, our attraction, our attraction for him will be the strongest desire that drives us when we enter glory. And he indeed will be the fulfillment of everything that we have longed for on earth when our redeemed hearts will enjoy him forever. Verse 3 adds that this servant was despised and rejected by men. There is perhaps no other man more despised in the state of Pennsylvania right now than Jerry Sandusky. You and I can't possibly understand what this man must be experiencing. A man who once enjoyed great respect for being one of the most sought-after defensive coaches in the nation. And to now be held in such low esteem. Most of us would be crushed by the derision of other people should our secret sins be made public. What must it be like to be completely friendless like Jerry Sandusky? Jesus knows. Jesus was the man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And yes, he is the friend of the friendless. The Father sent the Son into the world to be despised and rejected by men, to be held in little esteem. 
this servant endured the shame and the alienation that you and I deserve for our rebellion. And yet God offers us through him the gift of friendship. The friendship that we had rejected with our God and consolation to reconcile us, we a people deserving condemnation. Well, not only does this gift surprise us, it also satisfies us by meeting our greatest need by a substitution. Verses 4 through 6 offer one of the most remarkable descriptions in all of Scripture regarding how the suffering servant took our place. He is our satisfactory substitute by way of impartation and imputation. Now, impartation means to pass on, to transmit to another. And so it says that our filth was passed on to this servant. Verse 4 says that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Friends, he entered into our world to take on our spiritual illness. Back in March, my family went on a trip down to Virginia to visit some good friends of ours and We spent hours just laughing and telling stories and sharing very rich fellowship. These these are the kinds of friends that just make you want to be godly. Just giving you that that precious glimpse of heaven. Well, before our arrival, one family member uh, of this family had not been feeling all that well. And by the last day of our visit, one of our own children was not feeling all that well. And by the end of the following week, every single member of both families had come down with a stomach flu. To this day, we cannot agree on who passed on the bug to whom. Jesus came to visit us that we might pass our disease on to him. He intentionally took upon himself our infirmities. When I was about four years of age, I came down with a chicken pox. And a neighbor family brought one of their young children over to spend a few hours with me in order to catch the disease and to get it over with. Now, today, we can inoculate our children so that they don't catch the chicken pox. This servant of God, Isaiah describes was smitten and afflicted, on whom the Lord passed our spiritual diseases. However, God in his mercy, through this servant's work, has also created an inoculation to protect you and I from being diseased and separated from God forever. And friends, this is what we call imputation. Verses 5 through 6 expound upon this idea of imputation. It says that this servant was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That which we deserved, he suffered in our place as a substitute. And in here lies the beauty of imputation. 
The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. By his stripes, you and I are healed. This means that our healing and our reconciliation came by the punishment that he endured in our place. By imputation, God placed all of our sin and transgressions on this servant. It's like God took all of our toxic debts and applied them to Jesus' account. And in turn, God took all of Jesus' righteousness and credited it, it to our accounts. This transaction trumps the biggest efforts of European banks to bolster up troubled nations and economies in the EU. You see, imputation is the great, the true great exchange where we trade places. Jesus suffers on our cross. And we are privileged to share in his glory in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.21 sums it up well. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I confess that on the evening of Thanksgiving, Black Friday Eve, I too was one of those crazy shoppers who went out to the big retail store events, and I spent about an hour outside Target, which wasn't all that bad. What was worse was when I got inside the store, I had to stand in a a longer line as the product that I was seeking to purchase could only be purchased in the electronics section of the store. And unlike the front of the store, which had dozens of checkout lines, they only had two checkout lines in the electronics section. So there I stood for the better part of two hours. Now after this uh, two-hour adventure or not much of an adventure, I, I noticed that there was a young lady, a teenage girl up ahead of me who um, was, had not been with our, in our line uh, as long as we had. And uh, as I got closer to this particular corner, I could tell that she was just maneuvering and trying to get in our, our line with us. And uh, as I suspected, she was trying to cut without having to wait the long time that the rest of us had waited. And as I observed that nobody else was saying anything, and as she was about to maneuver right in front of me, I gently but firmly informed her that she needed to go to the end of the line at 2 o'clock in the morning, no less. (laughs) It's a test of my sanctification. Well, when she began to argue with me, I explained to her that she didn't even have to be in our line because the items she wanted to purchase did not have to be purchased here. She could go to the front of the store and very likely would not have to wait near as long. And uh, she took my advice and left. And I was getting the attaboys from the people behind me uh, for taking that initiative. Like this young lady, we want a shortcut. We want to cut in line. We don't want to have to endure the long and arduous task that the cross calls us to. But the the beauty of the gospel, 
The beauty of Christ is that God provides one who stood in the line for us. That, that Jesus stood in the line of God's judgment. And we stand identified with him. You know, it's interesting, when I had, to, in order to get my product at that checkout line, it had my name on it because I had, had stood in one line earlier to get my name on it, had to come back later to see it with my name on it again. And it made me think of how Unless you're properly labeled, unless you are marked, you can't enter. And friends, when we get to heaven, we must be marked with the name of Jesus. We must be identified with him to enter the kingdom of God. This gift of satisfaction by way of substitution provides for us acceptance before God. Even those of us and all of us who are disqualified, God accepts cheaters. He accepts those who cut, who are willing to repent and humble themselves and submit, who are willing to change off the, the, change off the path of the world and get on the pathway of the cross through Christ Jesus. For it is in Christ Jesus that we no longer have any condemnation before the Lord our God, the one who took on all of our punishment. Not only are we accepted, we gain access to the Father as well-loved sons and daughters of the living God who embraces us and welcomes us into his presence through the Son. Let us thank God for this greatest of Christmas gifts. Well, turning now to verse 6 and 7 and following, we come to a bit of a transition, introducing the themes of shame and shock. Here, the author compares us to sheep that are going astray. We are put to shame because of our culpable neglect of God's holy law and our rebellious rejection of him. Nevertheless, the Lord laid upon his servant the iniquity of us all. The theme of shame continues as we, we behold these shocking highlights of what the suffering servant experienced. He was treated with inhumanity and injustice. It says in verse 7 that he was oppressed and afflicted. It says that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. The irony here is that Jesus was the most human person to ever walk the face of the earth and yet was treated like an animal with gross and severe cruelty. What is marvelous here is the response of the Savior. It says that not once, but at least twice here, it says that he did not open his mouth in his own defense. Is it not human nature to want to defend ourselves, to justify ourselves against false charges, to retaliate against those who attack us unjustly. And yet the Son, in submission to the Father, endured it all. Like Isaac, allowing his father Abraham to bind him and raise the knife, so Jesus willingly allowed himself to become a sacrificial lamb. The Apostle Peter, reflecting upon this wonderful passage in his second letter, records these words. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The servant also suffered gross injustice, having been falsely judged, cut off from his people in the prime of life without cause, was put to death without any legitimate charges laid against him. We find not a better, more concise description of the final 18 hours of our Lord Jesus' life here on earth. This fall, I've been reading a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a theologian who joined the conspiracy in Germany to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And it has struck me again the unimaginable injustices and indignities that the Nazis inflicted upon the Jewish people and other undesirables. In one vivid scene, the SS men engaged in some kind of satanic ritual, dancing and singing for joy over the dead bodies of those whom they had just slaughtered. It was these acts that stirred the military increasingly to join the conspiracy to bring down Hitler, realizing finally how truly wicked the Nazi regime was, determined not only to defeat the nations, but to liquidate inferior peoples. Our world is far too filled with many examples of grave injustices and indignities. Like the blood of Abel, they cry out for justice and a savior. This text helps us to understand that Jesus restores our humanity and our dignity by suffering in humanity and in dignity. He establishes a kingdom of justice and righteousness by becoming a victim of injustice. And the great paradox of Christmas is that God sent this precious gift into our world only to be trampled upon that you and I might receive the gift of everlasting life. Just a week ago, our daughter, Marie, celebrated her 10th birthday, and at her request, we invited all the girls in her class at school over for a party. And uh, my wife, Stacy, went out to buy her a, a, one of those large sheet birthday cakes from Costco. And this was the triple chocolate kind with chocolate cake and chocolate mousse and chocolate frosting on top. Now, uh, last Saturday morning, she had put the cake in the back of our suburban vehicle parked outside. Now, our our two-year-old Justice has this habit of making his way outside and finding his way into our vehicles. And unfortunately, my wife had forgotten to lock the car. To his great surprise, our two-year-old son scored big and found the cake in the back 
of the truck. The evidence was everywhere with frosting all over the upholstery. I'm not sure that he actually stood on the cake. But there were two large indentations that that may have just been his fist. Uh, Thankfully, most of the cellophane was still in place, as might be expected. My wife Stacy and I were quite disgusted. But then we were worried about how our daughter Marie would react. I mean, even her name on the cake was no longer recognizable. But to our grateful surprise... Our daughter offered no fuss. She did not chastise her baby brother. In fact, my wife and I were humbled at her mature response, and she actually taught us something about God. Though her cake had been trampled on, she showed grace to her little brother. She showed compassion. And and I think that it was actually the joy of celebrating her birthday with her friends that overwhelmed her anger towards her brother. You know, in a similar way, God has compassion on his children. Though we have trampled his son, his most precious gift, he has chosen to show us mercy. And I believe that it was for the joy of you and I joining him at the great feast that made crushing his own son all the worthwhile. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12 says that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, this Christmas, let us approach the manger with humble, somber, joyful celebration for a God who did not spare his only son, but freely offered him up in our place. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we are humbled and we are stricken by the description in this passage We can hardly imagine what our Savior endured on our behalf. We can hardly imagine the the passion and the love and and the zeal of the Lord that, that sent our Savior into this world to experience such horrors. And yet, Lord, we are all the more grateful that at this Christmas we can celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ has come into this world of darkness to save sinners, to seek and to save the lost, and to draw us to celebrate and feast with him in glory. Oh, Father, might we be joyful. May our hearts might be glad this season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.